how do you get things clean? Now, I know that Ian's sitting in the front row here and he does car detailing. How does he get things clean? He gets things clean immaculately. Is that right, Ian? Try until you've got a mirror finish. So, so he polishes and he buffs. And now, I don't have all Ian's things, but the thing that I think we use increasingly to get things clean, I think are these. Does anyone know what these are? Some nodding heads. These are wipes, okay? And uh, as I said yesterday, uh, they're designed to get whatever comes out of a baby off a baby. Uh, they're also designed, I think, to clean pretty much anything that exists. So if you've got dirty shoes, get some of these. If your car seats, probably don't tell this to Ian, but if your car seats are looking bad, you can use them and they'll, they'll clean up. Uh, you want to do a little bit of dusting? Dust doesn't run away from the... They're brilliant. They're really great. Does anyone use them like that? Some nodding heads. Okay. So, so these things, these wipes, are pretty amazing. They can clean up almost anything. And then there's been a new invention recently. Is it, has anyone heard that the invention that they did with these? Uh, they, they call them flushable wipes. Have you heard of them? So, so the idea is uh, that you would be wiping wherever you are. I don't get this, actually. Really, really don't get this. You'd be wiping wherever you wipe up, and then you would go to the toilet and flush them. Have you heard of flushable wipes? Okay, well, apparently, apart from you, other people have definitely heard of flushable wipes. Um, so you want to get anything clean, baby wipes, and you want to get rid of it, flush it down the toilet. It's unsolvable, unsolvable problems get solved by baby wipes. There we go. That's, uh, that's pretty good. They're going to come back a little bit later. But basically, if you want something clean, these are the, uh, these are the goods. Uh, now, this morning, I reached into the back of my sock drawer. Does anyone have a sock drawer? Okay, I reached into the back of my sock drawer and I found something. I found the orphan sock. Do you, do you know the orphan sock? Okay, the, the orphan sock is the one that used to have a pair, but now you have no idea where the other one has gone. Uh, yes, you're at least vaguely familiar with this idea, aren't you? Somebody eats the socks, don't they? I, I don't know where they go. But at the back of the sock drawer, you can always find things that are lost. So this is one of those things, things that are lost. I want to suggest today that in the sock drawer of our lives, we've got something that we lost. We've got something that we lost, something that's tucked down the back of the sock drawer of our lives. It's, uh, it's an old-fashioned thing. I mean, these are hand-knitted socks by my grandmother. That's pretty old-fashioned, isn't it? I love them, though. They're great. It's an old-fashioned thing. It's something that uh, is so old-fashioned that I actually think most people have forgotten that they have one. It's one of these things that's got lost. No one talks about it. No one mentions it. No one even remembers, it seems to me, that they have one. The thing that seems to have got lost is a thing called a conscience. Has anyone heard of that? Has anyone heard of conscience in the last two weeks? I would dare to say you haven't heard of a conscience for a long time. Conscience is this idea that in our head, we actually have an accounting of what is right and wrong. We know right from wrong. We know when we do right from wrong. And somewhere inside us, we are made uneasy by our wrong. Just like the sock that I didn't know I had, every now and again, you might stumble upon your conscience. It'll whisper to you and say, you shouldn't be doing this. Anyone had that experience? That was the wrong thing to do. Or there is actually a better side to our conscience. That was the right thing to do. 
Or alternatively, you really should do that. This would be really helpful. A conscience, a thing that I want to suggest today that we should find. I also want to suggest to you that if your conscience is anywhere like mine, there are some parts of it that haven't had an airing for a while. There are some parts of it that could well do well with being cleansed. That weigh us down, that if we ever put our hand back there and found it, would cause us to feel immensely guilty and ashamed. Today, I want us to think, what is it that can wipe away our sin, our shame? What is it that can do that? It won't be baby wipes, will it? I want to suggest to you today, there is only one thing that will wipe away our sin and our shame. And that thing is not a what, but a who. Who is it that can wash away our sin and our shame? Well, no, no surprise. I'm going to say the answer today is Jesus of Nazareth. That he, in his life and his death, did everything that was needed that our conscience, that our hearts might be wiped clean. Today, as we go through and reflect on Mark chapter 15, I'm going to ask that you might trust him and ask him to wash away your sin. I'm going to ask at the end of this message if you want to do that today. And so I'm telling you now that you might prepare. I'm telling you today, you can know for sure that your sins are forgiven if you ask him. And I'm going to invite you to do that at the end of today. But having said that, here's a question I reckon naturally comes up. All very well, how could I trust Jesus? How how could I, why would I, what has he done that would make him an effective cleanser of my conscience? And why would I put my life in his hands? This is perfectly reasonable. And in fact, if I'd asked you to do anything else, most of you would want to do some due diligence, wouldn't you? Do some homework, find out exactly what's going on. So today, I want to suggest there are good reasons to trust Jesus and why you should. The first has got to do with historical evidence. So I'm going to talk today from this book here. But if I start there, I reckon there'll be some people here today who'll go, well, of course the Bible would say that. How do we even know? Well, let me show you some historical evidence that comes from outside the Bible. There's an historian called Tacitus, a Roman historian, wrote voluminously, apparently 30 volumes of the history of Rome. Uh, He was actually alive just after Jesus. And in one of his accounts, uh, he writes this. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero, you've heard of the Emperor Nero? Nero, talking about the fire that Nero started. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for a moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their centre and become popular. How's that for an account of your city? Now, this is a Roman historian. He's writing about what had happened earlier in the reign of Nero. And he's saying, there are Christians. 
that the person who's the chief Christian is Jesus Christ, that he suffered the extreme penalty, which is crucifixion, and that it all happened in Judea under a guy called Pontius Pilate. Now, all of those facts are in evidence from a Roman historian. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's outside the Bible. What about this? Uh, for a while, outside of Tacitus, there hadn't been any proof. Well, the people don't count the Bible, you know, they kind of go, the Bible doesn't really count. Hadn't been any real proof for Pilate. Then in 1961, they found a stone called the Pilate Stone. And uh, it's partly defaced, but it's from a city called uh, Caesarea, what is it, Caesarea Maritima, uh, on the coast in Israel. And uh, this, uh, this stone says this, Pontius Pilatus, with a V, V is a U in, uh, in Romans. Here's the thing. Here's a bit of stone that Pilate put in place. It's his name in stone in Israel. Was Pilate a real guy? Yes, he was. The stone says so. Here's another guy, a magistrate called Pliny the Younger. There was actually a Pliny the Elder. Pliny the Younger. They, the Christians, were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. How about that, guys? We've been, we spared you today. Uh, unlike the historical Christians, we're meeting at 10 a.m. That's pretty good, isn't it? When they sang in alternate verse a hymn to Christ as to a God and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to any wicked deeds but never to commit any fraud, theft or adultery, never to falsify their word nor to deny or trust when they should be called upon to deliver it. After which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. Excellent. What's he telling us? Well, from uh, around the time of Jesus, 61 to 113 AD, he says Christians met and they worshipped Jesus Christ as a God. Was it a late idea that Jesus was God? No. A very early idea. When was it observed? It was observed very early in Rome by a Roman historian. How about that? Third one. Oh, this is a little bonus point about uh, Pliny the Younger. He's so reliable an historian, he writes about the, uh, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, he's so reliable an historian that volcanologists, people are into volcanoes, use his account of the eruption of Mount Vesuvius to study what happened. How good is that? All right, bonus. Third one, someone you wouldn't expect. So we've had two Roman historians. Here's a Jewish historian. How much do you reckon he's into Jesus? Okay, I'll give you a hint. Not very much. Here's what he writes. Josephus, Josephus is writing about what happened in his lifetime in Jerusalem. Now, about that time lived Jesus, a wise man. For he was a worker of amazing deeds and a teacher of people who gladly accept the truth. He won over both many Jews and many Greeks. Pilate, when he had heard him accused by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross but those who had first loved him did not cease doing so. To this day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not disappeared. What have we established here? Jesus exists. Jesus was a worker of deeds. Jesus died on the cross under Pilate. And the Christians, the movement he founded, has not died out. So far, we haven't opened a Bible. How's that going? It's pretty amazing, isn't it? So these facts... That's the uh, works of Josephus, uh, the Jewish historian. These facts establish a whole lot of stuff that we would otherwise have to find in the Bible. But you know what? The Bible adds some color too, doesn't it? 
adds more meaning. They give you the bare facts. The Bible fills in the story, colours it in, colours in the outline that the historians give us. What do we see? Well, if we open up our Bibles, uh, we're going to go to, uh, to Mark. And uh, if you've still got them open, that'd be great. If you haven't, it'd be great to get back there and uh, open them up. In Mark chapter uh, 14, last night at our uh, Maundy Thursday service, we heard these words. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. You can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Really interestingly, Jesus is saying, in the week leading up to his death, a lady came to him, poured perfume on him. Everyone had a go at, at this lady and said, hey, you're wasting money. What are you doing? Jesus said, she is preparing my body for burial. How many people prepare their body for burial before they die? None of us. Jesus recognized the act of this woman and said, this is happening because I'm about to die. What I want you to note from this is the Bible says Jesus was not surprised by his death. He predicted it. He knew it was going to happen and God had planned it. God had planned his death and Jesus knew it was imminent. If we look on a little bit further, if we have a look in chapter 15, the account that was just read for us uh, by Darren, if we look at verses 44 to 46, we see how it was, uh, not 44 to 46, it's a little bit earlier than that. Um, Where is it? It must be in chapter 14. Yeah, chapter 14, verses 44 to 46. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. What I want you to see here is that Jesus was arrested. He didn't hand himself in, but he was arrested. Jesus was betrayed. They came to find him at night. He was betrayed by one of his best friends, one of his trusted circle. And he was arrested at night so that there wasn't an outcry because crowds of people had been coming to listen to Jesus. And so what did they do? They found him at night on his own with his disciples. One of his disciples who had been, uh, well, he was a betrayer, kissed Jesus to identify him. And Jesus was arrested. Jesus was then put on trial. If we look at verse 62 of uh, chapter 14, Jesus was put on trial. The high priest, that's uh, the Jewish leaders, had, had arrested Jesus. And they said to him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus answered, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes. Why did he do that? It was a sign of distress. Today, if we tear our clothes, that's a sign that you need to go and fix them. For the Jewish leaders to tear their clothes is to say, this is terrible. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. There's a court that meets in the middle of the night. It's the powerful rulers of the Jewish people. They bring Jesus before them 
And they say to him, are you truly the Messiah, the King? Now at that point, if Jesus had wanted to save his skin, he could have said anything. But he said the most, the the strongest statement, he says actually in the whole of the Gospels here, he says, I am and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. How many people do you think do that? Not many. Let me, let me cut to the chase. There's only one who will do that, who will sit at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, who will come on clouds of glory. He is claiming to be divine. And that is why Jesus claimed divinity for himself and the night trial found him worthy of death. You see, if Jesus wasn't the son of God, saying I'm about to come on clouds of glory is blasphemy, claiming to be equal to God. And Jesus had just said it plain as can be in front of the Jewish leaders. And they said, well, we don't share your opinion. You're worthy of death. The next thing the Bible tells us is some of the detail. The Jewish, uh, the Jewish uh, leaders can't execute anyone. This is kind of one of those strange things. The Jewish leaders can't exercise, uh, execute anyone because they're occupied by the Romans. So the Roman troops have come into Israel and they're placed all over Israel as an occupying army. Because of this, they keep the Jewish leadership intact, but they say, you lead under us. One of the things we'll do, because you're an occupied country, is you won't be able to execute anyone because we're the boss here. So they've just said Jesus is worthy of death. What do they have to do? They have to take him somewhere where someone can legally kill him. Who can legally kill him? The Romans. And so they take Jesus to Pilate, who's the governor, as we saw in those accounts of history. So they take him to Pilate. And Pilate declares that he is not guilty. But the crowd demands something more. We pick it up in verses uh, verses 6 to 11. Now, it was the custom at the festival, this is chapter 15, to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what they usually did, what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Barabbas is an intriguing name. Uh, Bar means son of. Abba means father. Barabbas means son of the father. Intriguing name, isn't it? Pilate says, do you want me to release to you the son of the father? And they say, yep, we do want that. We want, well, actually, he actually asked, first of all, sorry, he said, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Do you want me to release Jesus to that? Now, Jesus is the son of the father, isn't he? He's the son of God. Jesus is the son of the father. And then he says, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they say, give us Barabbas, the son of the father. It's really intriguing. So they take a murderer an insurrectionist, and they have him released in place of the innocent son of the father. Can you see this? So what happens in the trial is this. Jesus' innocent life was exchanged for a truly guilty insurrectionist. What's an insurrectionist? Well, interesting enough, someone trying to have a a rebellion to overthrow the government. 
And Pilate says, okay, I'll release to you the insurrectionist in place of the innocent man. It's a crazy exchange. What did they do next? Well, I think the next thing just speaks of human nature, really. Uh, Have a look at this. In verse 17, he's taken to the soldier's uh, praetorium. Uh, They put a purple robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns to set it on him. Oh, I missed verse, uh, verse 15. He had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Has anyone here seen The Passion of the Christ? I've still got scars from that movie. If you haven't seen it, we just read straight past this. So it says there, he had Jesus flogged and then handed him over to be crucified. The bit we don't understand is how horrific that flogging would have been. Basically, they would have taken all the skin off Jesus' back. You would, it would have been reasonable to die from the flogging. Jesus was flogged. So we just read past this. He had Jesus flogged, and then he handed him over to be crucified. Now, the soldiers get in on the act. Uh, so they've received Jesus, this bloody man, and they get in on the act, and they take him into their place. They put a purple robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, this is so typical. Have you heard the stories of what happens, happened in Iraq and Afghanistan with troops from America? and maybe some troops from Australia, when they get into a foreign place, it is possible for soldiers to despise the locals, yeah? Here they have the king, apparently, of the locals in the soldiers' room. What do you think is going to happen? Horrible things are going to happen. And so they set a crown of thorns on his head. They're not little. They're about this long. They pushed it onto his head, they, they called out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And, and this bit, I, I, I just don't think I'd taken account of before. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. See, I, I, once you get soldiers, physical men, with a staff in their hand, and they're hitting Jesus in the head, can you imagine how this would feel? They're hitting him in the head. What is he wearing on his head? A crown of thorns. Their blows push the thorns into his head. Falling on their knees, having spat on him, they fall on their knees and paid homage to him. They worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Now for us today, when we think about crucifying, look, it's amazing Jesus was brutalized by these foreign soldiers exactly as he predicted. But when we think about it, we we reduce it to this, don't we? And there's nothing wrong with wearing a cross. So don't hear me say, take your crosses off, okay? But this is so domesticated. This is such a... It ends up being a beautiful object, doesn't it? Our crosses. The bit that we don't remember about Easter is that it was so horrific that the Christians wouldn't use the sign of the cross for their religion for at least 300 years. Because people who had witnessed it knew how humiliating and devastating it was. The picture of the cross that we should have in mind is something like this. 
And it's so horrible that in the end, we, we want to sanitize it. And I, I tossed up not putting this image up. But the whole point is, it happened like this. The real cross was so horrific. It was so horrific. There was a physicality to the cross that was so horrific, so brutal, so bloody, so humiliating. And what we're saying today is that this was Jesus' choice, that he did this for us. Questions come up, don't they? If, if, you, if you hear that, questions naturally arise. Not least of all this question that's called out to Jesus. Have a listen to what the, uh, the, the Jewish chief priests say. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. So there's Jesus hanging on the cross in the way that we just saw him. And they look up and they go, well, this guy, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. How terrible is this? Those crucified with him hope their insults on him. I mean, it makes sense. If you're the king, if you're the incredible, wonderful Messiah, and you're dying in the way we just saw, aren't you powerless? Aren't you humiliated? Aren't you worthless? Haven't the Romans beaten you? Yeah. And so the question comes, is the death of Jesus merely a terrible end for a beautiful teacher? Or how about this? One of the things that happened as he was on the cross at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Surely we must ask, why this cry? Why did Jesus say that? And thirdly, it says that as he died, that the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus, probably incidentally, one of them who had mocked him, stood there and saw Jesus and saw how he had died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. What had the centurion seen that made him cry like that? Here's the cross. A cross that was the plan of God, that was deeply personal, that was because Jesus had claimed to be divine, that was in exchange for someone who deserved to be on the cross. He was mocked and brutalized. How does this cross work? How does this cross work? What is it that this cross achieves that makes sense of the humiliation of the Son of God? How does it work? Well, I said before that we have a conscience. And I want you to imagine that instead of a conscience in the back of our minds, we have a book, an accounting book, in which my sins are written down. Over the course of my life, this book would grow. Its pages would be filled. I'm sure my book would be much larger. I can't vouch for yours. If this is me and this is God, then what happens on the cross is something that does away with my sin. See, the problem with me having a relationship with God is my sin keeps on getting in the way. I can turn over a new leaf, but I don't know about you, every time I turn over a new leaf, I just start filling it in. Or I can say, oh, today I'm going to turn my life around. 
And I may move forward in a new way, but I don't undo the wrong I've already done. God says the punishment for our sin is death. And so he sends his son, Jesus, who never sinned, who had no record book of sin. And what the Bible says is that on the cross, God laid on Jesus my sin and your sin and your sin until on the cross, Jesus is bearing the weight of the sins of the world. And so he will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, for the first time in all of eternity, the Son of God is separated from the Father, the goodwill of the Father, by the sins of the world. On the cross, Jesus dies to pay the price for our sin. Tomorrow, we will celebrate that he was raised to life to to prove that that sin was paid for. And so now in heaven, he can offer me relationship with God because where is my sin gone? It's taken away. What did the cross achieve? My sin and your sin, that great substitution took place. The price was fully paid. And so today we have a choice. We have a choice to make. We can be like the leaders who felt threatened by Jesus and made a mockery of him on the cross. Maybe today you're more like Joseph. You're someone who became a Christian years ago. Joseph went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. He buried it reverently. He cared for Jesus and he put his faith into action. Perhaps you're like him. Or perhaps you're like the centurion. You came, if not out loud, then certainly someone who'd mocked Jesus, who'd had no place for him in our hearts. And yet as we see him on the cross, We're repentant. We want to turn from the life that we've lived before. We want to confess, truly this man is the Son of God. He has died in my place. So today, for those of you who are still thinking that this Son of God was humiliated on the cross, come and do Jesus for the curious with me. Spend four weeks examining him him for yourself. For those of you who are working it out today, please take one of these copies of The Essential Jesus. Read the account of Jesus' life for yourself. For those of you here today, and this is the first time in our church, but you've made that decision to follow Jesus before, make new life your home. We'd love to see you. We'd love to encourage you to keep walking the path of obedience to Jesus. Here's the way Jesus himself explains what he did on the cross. He's talking about greatness. Some of his disciples have been arguing about greatness. He says to them, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What did Jesus say? I'm buying your life. My life for yours. My death in your place. Your slate wiped clean because I have paid for you. You know those flushable wipes I was talking about before? They're a terrible thing. Here's the thing. They don't dissolve. They're supposed to go into the toilet and then magically dissolve away. I think quite often we want to clean our consciences with a little wipe. 
we say to ourselves, I'm not as bad as that person. I didn't really mean it. It wasn't as bad as other people think about it. And the dirt comes off and goes on to here and we forget about it. We flush it away. Here's the thing. Those wipes haven't gone anywhere. The dirt's on them and it's with you. What the Bible says uh, is that uh, our sin, our sin, the punishment for our sin will catch up with us. Here's an example of what happens in our sewers with everyone who who uh, flushes down these, these flushable wipes. They end up like this. They're called a fatberg. They get caught in the drain and eventually they stop everything flowing. They back up and eventually if you keep flushing them down, guess what? Your toilets don't flush anymore. That's a great illustration, isn't it? We can keep flushing away, flushing away, and eventually we won't be able to flush it away, and the rubbish we want to get rid of is in our room. This is our life. You don't get to trade it away, and you can't wipe it away. There's only one who can do that, Jesus Christ. Jesus alone can wipe away our sin. And today I reckon there's a bunch of people sitting here who know that and want that. I want to be free of it. I know that it's a lie. I know I've flushed it, but I know it's hanging around. I want to be truly free. I want to know what it is to have a clear conscience, to know that my sins are forgiven, that one day I can meet the living God without charge or accusation against me. Jesus alone can wipe our sins away. And so there's a prayer I'm going to invite you to pray. It looks like this. At one level, it's a completely simple prayer. You could pray any number of prayers, but it's something like this. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross. And today we've been reminded what an extraordinary cost it was. I am sorry for my sin. I know that I've hurt you and others, God. Please forgive me. Please come into my life as king. Amen. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray that prayer now. For some of you, even as I've been talking, you've remembered you have one of these. Not a sock. Conscience. You'd like to know it can be free today. Forgiven. And so I want to give you an opportunity to do that now. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pray this prayer a line at a time. If you would like to make that your prayer today, can I ask you to pray it after me? Some of you might want to say it out loud. Some of you will find that completely terrifying. And here's the thing, God's listening. You don't need to say it out loud. I'm going to pray now. And I'm going to leave a space. And if you would like to pray with me, please do. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross. I am sorry for my sin. I know that I've hurt you and others. Please forgive me. Please come into my life as king. Amen. I love the cross. It looks like a bloody mess, doesn't it? And yet there is the only place that we will find freedom from our sins, 
whole, complete, wiped out. The only thing that will set us free. The cross was not a humiliation. It was a victory won in the face of those who mocked him. Jesus let himself be crucified as part of the plan of God as his heart overflowed in love for us and he paid the price for our sins. Amen.